Well, this morning we want to continue our study in the book of 1 Corinthians, and this morning we're going to land at chapter 12. And uh, I feel really blessed that I'm the one that gets to talk on 12. It's a passion of mine. It's, It's one that I have been kind of watching develop in my own life, but more so by looking over my shoulder and trying to figure out, given all the things and challenges that happen throughout a person's life, I'm thinking of my life, how does this thing of spiritual gifts fit into it? And um, I, I, I've taken many, many tests. How many have taken a spiritual gifts test? Thank you. How many of you are really excited about doing what you discovered to be in the top three of them? Let's make another one. How many remember what they are? All right, well, good, good, good. This, this is a topic... I've had a a number of experiences throughout life, and here's the one thing I've observed, and and let me just let this sort of be an identifying statement over what I'm talking about this morning, is that unbeknownst to me, every time the Lord opened a door for me, and I stepped into it, whether out of desperation or whether it was a push or however, got through that door, I discovered rather, I discovered something rather significant. It looked a whole lot like my spiritual gift. And as I began to watch that kind of develop throughout my life, I realized that this isn't just a cute study, sort of an optional thing in life, but it is really something God is designing. Let's work with that this morning. I've entitled our, our, our thought this morning, uh, Spiritual Gifts Kingdom Synergy. I, I, I'm using the word synergy not just to impress you. I'm using the word synergy because I really think it best defines the church. When we, talk, when we come to this particular topic out of, uh, out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Synergy, by definition, is something that, be, something that is greater than its whole. In other words, 2 plus 2 is not 4 when it comes to synergy. 2 plus 2 could become 5 or 10 or, or 20. Because the simple truth is that when I come together with somebody else, it's not just two people working out of their own individuality, but it's two people that who have combined their individuality and are beginning to create something more than who they were, even separately or just because they're together. And so when we think about the idea of spiritual gifts, we're talking about this massive possibility. We need to understand this one. After NASA... Uh, after their Apollo 11's incredible feat of putting two men on the moon and another one floating around to make sure everything was fine, in June of 1969, do you remember where you were in June of 1969? I picture it. I can see it right now. I can watch Neil Armstrong bouncing his first step on the, uh, on the moon. Here's what astronaut Michael Collins said about all of this, though. He said, This is possible only through the blood, sweat, and tears of thousands of people. All you see are the three of us, but underneath the surface are thousands and thousands of others. In fact, according to author Catherine Thimish, there were about 400,000 others who helped put the Apollo 11 mission mission on the moon. In her book, Teen Moon, Themish shares stories of those hidden heroes, spacesuit seamstress, you ever think of that? Radio telescope operators, parachute designers, and others who made it possible to get men to the moon, get them home, 
and let the rest of the world watch while it happened. Kennedy Space Center, some 17,000 engineers, mechanics, soldiers, contractors, and other workers set up the enormous missile for the launch. And then there were the two bobs, the guys in Houston monitoring just how little fuel was left in the lunar module during its descent to the surface. Team Moon also included a 24-year-old computer whiz kid called Jack Garman, who helped work through worrisome computer glitches during the Eagle's landing. The computer code that ran all the systems was developed by a team of software engineers at MIT, led by Margaret Hamilton. Roughly 500 people worked on the spacesuit, including one seamstress who commented, we didn't worry too much until the guys on the moon started jumping up and down. That gave us a little bit of an eyebrow twitch, he said. I mean, could you imagine? And no wonder astronaut Neil, Neil Armstrong would say later that as he took his first step on the moon, he immediately thought about all those 400,000 people who had given him the opportunity to make that first step. The very principle of this story is why it is absolutely critical that we never underestimate the power of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Why? One simple reason. We have a far greater mission than putting a man on the moon. We have a mission that calls us to use the very gifts that God has given us to direct, manage, serve, oversee the eternal destination of humankind. No wonder Paul says in verse 1, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to stop for just a moment and think back on all your Christmas celebrations. For some of us, that's a few. When you were growing up, can you recall a Christmas gift you really wanted you, you dreamed it. You remember back in the day, oh, I'm so dating myself. Do you remember getting the Eaton's Christmas catalog? Some of you are saying Eaton's. <laughs> then, then came the Sears Christmas catalog, the Wish catalog. Do you remember sitting on your couch going, looking at them that day, and then the next day you're doing what? You're right back at it, and you're sitting there, and you're dreaming it. I had a dream this one particular Christmas of getting an H.O. train set. I don't know if you know what that means. H.O., when the train sets that my brother had, they, they were about this tall and went around a little track. Then the H.O. ones came out, and they were about this tall. And every little piece of, they're, they're accurately designed, every little piece and, and part of it was there, and it, just, it was a beautiful thing. It was just a beautiful thing. So I'm begging my parents. It starts about, I don't know, when did the magazines come out or the catalogs come out? And I'm going for this. Oh, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. And come Christmas morning, guess what I got? I got an H.O. train set. I really did. And the beauty of all of that was simply this. I saw the look on my parents' face as I opened it. I, I, I saw what they were thinking. This gift now wasn't just about me and my little oval train track and the, and the six cars that came along with it. This all of a sudden became a living room experience that included me and my parents because they gave in order that I could get 
And it was kind of magical. I remember running around saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, carrying this box under my arm, kissing my parents, hoping I wouldn't injure them. And I'm going through this. This is just one high moment in the life of a boy who's about 10 years old. Now, just for the sake of the obvious, let's replay the scenario. Imagine that instead of opening my gift with exuberance and gratitude, a million thank yous, I open the package, I yawn, there's kind of this ho-hum, casually lay the gift aside without expressing any kind of gratitude, and then wish my gift was more like my brother's. Now, now seriously, think about this. How, how, how do you think my parents would have felt in that setting? They would have been devastated after spending time and money locating this gift for me, their own personal anticipation and joy in watching me open what they believed was exactly what I had longed for. It would have gone down the tubes. But with my ho-hum response, what a huge disappointment it would have put in the living room. The anticipation's gone. The excitement of the possibilities are gone. The box is just pushed underneath the Christmas tree for a later date. There's no little boy sitting there on the living room floor putting those pieces together with his dad helping him and his dad probably being the first one to get this thing going because he's just as excited about this train as I am. Now, like I said, for the sake of the obvious, imagine how the Lord must feel when he gives us gifts. I'm, this, this is not a guilt trip, folks. This is not me wagging my finger at anybody. This is just an awareness thought. What, what, what would happen in that case scenario that we can so easily see and experience in our imaginations as though we were there? wonder what it's like when he hands us something and we push it back under the Christmas tree. What would it be like when he gives you especially design gifts for his children and we never opened them or made the effort to find out what the gifts are never thank him and never put them to use it must be incredibly disappointing i think if if all of heaven can get excited over one person coming to jesus you begin to realize that this thing about God and his people isn't some sort of individual thing between me and God this is a living room experience when we embrace the things that God longs to give to us, this isn't just something me sitting down getting goosebumps over. This is me filling the very space that I live called the church. And we go into something that is powerful and supernatural and beyond our imagination. Today I'd like to see, like to see us put an end to this common phenomena that we find in 1 Corinthians 12, the first 11 verses, because Paul's going to tell us to unwrap our gift and use it to serve God and others, plain and simple. In these verses, Paul expresses two realities to you and me, to encourage us to unwrap the gift and then to use it in ministry, to do two things always, to serve our master, because everything that we do, we do to his glory, and to serve others because that's our calling. Like a wide-eyed child in pajamas on Christmas morning, let's begin to unwrap these verses on spiritual gifts because, friends, here's the truth. There's something under the tree for you, specially designed for you.
How do we begin this? Number one, we have to start at this point. Jesus is the validation of spirituality. You see, before Paul launches into this discussion on spiritual gifts, he he wants to focus first on the common work of the Spirit in each one of our lives. And so in verse uh, verse 1, Paul lays down this basic introduction to the paragraph, and indeed, it, it really carries on into the next three chapters. But Paul indicates his concern that the Corinthians not be ignorant of certain things. And the thing that he wants them to understand first is this is the gifts of the Spirit. I don't want you to be uninformed. This isn't about getting gifts. This is about connecting to the very triune God of which the Holy Spirit is a part who wants to then fill us and design us and motivate us to do this very thing for which we were designed. Paul wants all of his readers to understand that salvation is the great leveler. Every member of the Corinthian church who has trusted in Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and is incredibly valuable to God. And we can say exactly the same things to you and me. Here's our second point. Variety is the spice of church. Eric Schlosser's book and then movie, Fast Food Nation, Expose the dark side of the fast food industry. At one point, Schlosser describes a food production plant that runs 24 hours a day, 310 days a year, turning potatoes into French fries. Conveyor belts took the wet, clean potatoes into a machine that blasted them with steam for 12 seconds, boiled the water under the skins, exploded the skins off, And then then the potatoes were pumped into a preheat tank, shot through a lamb water gun knife, and they emerged as shoestring fries. Here's what's interesting, though. While this is all going on, there are four video cameras scrutinized from different angles looking for flaws. And when a French fly with French fly, when a French fry with a blemish was detected. An optical sorting machine time-sequenced a single burst of compressed air that knocked a bad fry off the production line and onto a separate conveyor belt, which carried it to a machine with a tiny automated knife that precisely removed the blemish. And then the fry was returned to the main production line. Sprays of hot water blanched the fries. Gusts of hot air dried them, and 25,000 pounds of boiling oil fried them to a slight crisp. Air cooled by compressed ammonia gas quickly froze them. A computerized sorter divided them into six-pound batches, and a device that spun like an out-of-control lazy Susan used centrifugal force to align the French fries so that they will all be pointed in the same direction. The fries were sealed in brown bags, and then the bags were loaded by robots into cardboard boxes, and the boxes were stacked by robots onto wooden pallets. What's the end goal? Millions and millions of French fries that look and taste exactly the same. Because here's the truth. We like uniformity. We want people to act and look and think just like us. We want to form ourselves into little groups that do not disturb us, do not challenge us. 
And so here we come into this thing called Christianity, and the Spirit of God starts talking about a very different thing. He's not talking about uniformity at all. But oh, how we like it. Boy, I, I, I'm, I'm getting old. I'm, I'm reminiscing a lot. I'm sorry, folks. I, I, I grew up... I won't tell you when it started, but I happened to enjoy the last part of the 60s and the 70s. That was a decade that happened a while ago, folks. And, um, and that, that, was the, that was the period of the great youth revolution, right? We were, we were anti-establishment. We were, we were not going to look like and dress like those people with their three-piece suits and ties and shirts. And when we showed up at our institutions, we were not going to look like anybody else. We were going to look like ourselves. And we did. We all showed up with our baggy jeans, cock, Joe Cocker shirts, and long hair. Strangely looking a whole lot like the people around us. And then, when, and then when the 70s moved closer to the 80s, those of us who were anti-materialistic got a little bored with that one. So what did we do in the midst of it all? We got jobs that paid us a whole lot of money. We bought our BMWs. We parked them in three-car garages in suburbs that were lined up with houses that looked what? Exactly the same. We like uniformity. But the God... But God calls us to something so very, very different. He's called us into something that is so diverse. And then he plants the supernatural power that he has designed in you. He's making you, in fact, uniquely you. We are not like the person beside us. You are not like the person in front of you. And you're not like anybody else, ultimately. You are you. We, we have to understand this because until we understand that I have this particular task, and if that particular task is not completed, then in this great scheme of things, there's a small piece missing. And I can't excuse myself because of it. So there's three emphases. We have to get this, folks, because you have to, if, if there's one point of individuality in all of that we're going to say right now is that you have your gift. Cherish it. But there's three emphases. The source of our gift, the goal of our gifts, and the distribution of our gifts. Let's work with this. First, in the first in verses four to six, we will see the source of our gifts come from the triune God. And Paul writes this there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone it is the same God at work. Paul is telling the Corinthians that there is not a single gift or even a one-size-fits-all box of gifts that believers are given. And in these three verses, Paul uses the word translated different three times because God loves variety. Every snowflake, every set of fingerprints, every leaf on every tree, every grain of sand is different from the other. And God never makes a replica. Instead, God says we are wonderfully different from one another. 
and he encourages diversity in his church by gifting each one of us uniquely for ministry. Yet in spite of this variety, believers are united by the same God and each member of the Trinity, which means the triunity, three unified members of this one called God, the Trinity, the triunity of God has a role in spiritual gifts and the Holy Spirit does this amazing thing of distributing them. The Lord places people in ministry, and God the Father empowers people to do ministry. So first of all, we must discover what spiritual gift the Holy Spirit has given you. This isn't a simple little exercise. This isn't just something, well, I wonder what, you know, what, what, what's in me, it's sort of like what's the color of my eyes or color of my hair, whatever. That, it's, it's not that. The Greek word for gift is charisma from which we get our English word, charisma. And charismatic. Now we're getting a little bolder. The charis part of the word simply means grace, and the ma portion of the word means that it is grace given. They are grace gifts that enable a person to glorify and serve God. And the one who exercises his or her gifts could rightly be called charismatic. So charismatic is not a name for just a few of the gifts. Rather interesting. Those of you who grew up in the Brethren Church or the Alliance Church or the Free Methodist Church or the Anglican Church or whatever, guess what? You were charismatics and you didn't even know it. <laughs> and we all come together under this one roof with one beautiful, beautiful, beautiful privilege, and that is we get to receive what only God can give to us, grace-given gifts freely. So therefore, understand this. These grace gifts are not earned. They are not the result of hard work. Not at all. They may not be related even to our natural skill set. Remember God has not gifted you to do what you want to do? Well, I'm going to reverse that a little bit later perhaps, but, but here's the bigger point. God hasn't gifted you to do what you want to do. He's gifted you to do what he has designed you to do. Because in his perfect picture of you, while he was forming you in your mother's womb, he already had a purpose for you. While he was doing all this wonderful work, and, and at that moment that you received him by faith, making you a child of God, he awakened within you by the Holy Spirit one or more spiritual gifts, the grace gifts that God has chosen in his sovereignty to grant you are there expressions of his love. This isn't a duty, friend. This is a design. This is something deeply embedded. As a matter of fact, if we want to take it to the end, even before time began, eternity passed, there's a design going on, a critical design going on. And, and, and then when, when your mom and dad got together and did that magical thing and, 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 and birth is beginning to form, in that moment, it's not just some sort, of, some sort of scientific biological collections of chemicals and hormones and stuff that somehow because of DNA is putting us together. No, yes, there's a scientific explanation for it, but I want you to know that all that scientific explanation is surrounded by the hands of a molding God who's taking you and forming you in miraculous, supernatural ways. 
That's why the question, what is my spiritual gift, is so important. Unless you know the answer, you'll never be effective in your service for Jesus Christ. You may spend your life doing something for which you were not gifted by God and so be frustrated and effective. And I am convinced from my years in ministry that there are many, many people who love Jesus but are very frustrated, who are not walking. I'm not not saying that, that God has created you in some sort of robotic fashion that unless you follow him in the exact sort of way and exactly in his footsteps, you've slipped out of the will. I'm just saying that in the great scheme of life, when stuff happens to you and you want to truly be committed to Jesus, you're going to look over your shoulder, discover that through the lens of your faith, there's something that looks like your spiritual gift because it's the design. But how beneficial it is when we learn and understand what the design is. It's not just sort of hoping and walking and guessing, but but rather we take our our, our lives and, and we start to put them into a form. And we start to understand and grow and learn all the things that God wants us to do in that gift. I think the best picture I could come up with in ignoring this sort of thing, it, it kind of comes out of a, a football analogy. It, it'd be like taking one of those, one of those, those linemen, one of those offensive linemen, big guys, overweight guys, solid guys who have one particular job, protect the quarterback, right? You've seen them. They are there. They're, they're there to do it. And the coach then, some, for some reason, gets an idea. He says, no, I think it'd be better if we took the offensive lineman and put him over as the wide receiver. Now, the wide receiver is the slight, light guy who can run like the blazes. His hands are nimble, and he's very, very athletic in a very different way. And you know right well that if you switch those positions, the game is in trouble. That offensive lineman... 10 steps into the run. Have you, have, you, have you ever seen any of those big linemen by accident catch and in, in, intercept the ball? And then they run for like 30 yards across the... And what do they do? They're dying, right? They're puffing, they're panting. I can't do this. When, when we try to step out of the design, there's just something terribly awkward about it. And then I think we get kind of discouraged about it. And then we just kind of give up on it. And then we discover that the reason that we were born is to wake up in the morning, do the job, do something at night, go to bed, and then repeat the practice day after day after day. Then when I look at myself within that context, because I've been there, I think probably all at one point perhaps, we get there, I, I, I wonder... Why life isn't working the way it's working? You, you sit in church and you sing the hymns and you talk about God's glory and, and the wonder of his name and, and this great Savior that's moving us through life and we sing them and, and in the moment we're moved, right? Because there's something inside of us that those songs trigger that says that's the God I want to serve. The problem is after we leave the building and that God fades because somehow we haven't sorted out the difference between the song and the realities of my inner world, where I need to connect not just in music to the song, I need to connect in reality to the song. And I need to live out what only God has designed in me. 
So how do we discover our spiritual gifts? Can I just get really practical here for a moment? Because I think it is so important that you can put a name to it. Because if you put a name to it, you can Google it. And if you can Google it, you can find some definitions. And you can find some practices. And you can find out how other people think about your spiritual gift. And all of a sudden, now you're beginning to get a picture that's a little bigger than what you thought it meant to be merciful. Or to be prophetic. Or to serve. And you start to get this bigger reality. So I I have given you... Can you see that? I hope you can. My life group leaders have done this, supposedly. (laughs) This is a website that just has a very simple spiritual gift test. It's not the end-all and be-all. But for those of you who are sitting there wondering, um, I wonder what it is. What is the name to this? There's pens in the back of your pews. There's paper somewhere. I'm asking you to write it down. Figure this one out. As a matter of fact, my last slide of the morning will be that. So if you can't get it now or you can't find the pen or the paper, then I encourage you to do it. Because this is step number one, just naming it. You can't work on what you don't know. And so I invite you to name it. Here's another one. Pray specifically for God to reveal your gifts. So in the midst of the test, which is a very pragmatic thing, there's something very subjective about it. It's not not faultless. I'm, I'm not saying it is at all. But in the middle of that experience, I'm asking you to stop and listen to the very spirit who indwells you and say, is this fitting? Is this working? Could you nudge me somewhere in the middle of all of this and just help me to get my hand on this, get a handle on this? And then help me to understand it. And then third, here's another thing that will help you. Ask mature Christians who know you what strengths they see in you. It'll, it'll, it'll be helpful. So you, you walk up to somebody who knows you. And you say, you know, I, I've done this test. And here's the top three things that came out of it. Do you see that in me? Now, now, now take that with a grain of salt. It's not the whole answer either. I remember one of my pastors talking about a, a friend of his who, who had a horrible stuttering issue. He just couldn't talk. It was, it was very severe. And yet he had this amazing story that he said he had sat and listened to. It took longer than normal to get the story out, but he said it was a powerful story. And he said, you know, um, I want you to tell that story we got this thing going on. It's coming up in a week or two, whatever. I want you to put that story together, and I want you to tell it. And, I mean, he just looks at me and says, you, you know, this is, this is crazy. That's, that's embarrassing. I mean, by mentioning, to me, mentioning it to me, you're, you're humiliating me. You want me to stand up here behind the pulpit in those days. It would have been bigger and wooden. And tell this story? I mean, everybody's going to be uncomfortable. Everybody's going to be sitting on their pews trying to tell me the next word because they've already guessed it, Right? The pastor said, my, my pastor said to him, I just want you to pray about it. And I, I want you to do that. At the end of the two-week period or whatever period of time it was, he said, okay, I'll do it. Can you imagine him sitting in the pew waiting for that moment? Can you imagine the thoughts that are running through his head? All the excuses that he's making as to why he is making himself, or, or all, the, all the rationale he's, he's, he's feeding his mind, saying, why in the world did I ever put myself in this place? 
he got up to, this, to, the, to the pulpit and he opened his mouth and he never stuttered. In fact, he never stuttered again. Now that's, that's, that's a story out there. It's not your common experience. Here's the point. If he'd asked his friends if they thought he should be a pastor, what would they have said? Ah, yeah, I don't know, you know. I mean, you know, pastors are preaching and you got this, you know, this thing going. I'm, I'm saying that there's stuff that God wants to do inside of you that there might even be, well, people who don't get it for you yet. He, he's planted something. He's designed something. And he's got a dream in you. And that young man, I don't know whether he went on to become a famous minister or not. He went on to become a minister. The point isn't whether he became famous because of this miraculous story. The point is that he became faithful in the middle of this miraculous story. And he did what he, dis- and, and he, did what he could not even imagine doing. Anyways, ask people. It might not give you the right answer. Keep on going. You go back to the test I took. You've prayed. God's moving something in you. You've asked some people. Ask members in your family. They might be a little cynical too. But it doesn't hurt to ask. Fourth, look for open doors of opportunity to try this gift and see if it fits. I think that's your best one. If God has planted something in you, it's taken root. It did take root, friends. When you became, when you made your confession of faith, the Holy Spirit started something. Something was planted. Something in there is now beginning to grow. It's there whether you're aware of it, whether you want to accept it, there's something that is growing inside of you. And if you're not certain about it, as opportunities come up that might say, hmm, I don't know, step into it. Here's your problem, though. You're going to be afraid to step into it. I want you to remember the man with the stutter. I want you to see if you could imagine the fear as he sat in that pew waiting for his moment. His heart had to be pounding. He's probably felt like he was going to vomit. I mean, you put yourself in that. The point is, he stepped into it. And it's in the stepping into it that we exercise a faith that can only be demonstrated when we step into it. We can't rationalize it. We can't find the right books to tell us what we should do or not do. We finally have to come to a place where we get a sense that God is moving me in this direction and we go into it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Go back and try another door. But you're not going to get there until by faith you move towards it. It's just the way God seems to choose to operate with us. And fifth, follow the desires of your spiritually maturing heart. It'll begin to come. You put all this together, you find, a, you find a name for it, you begin to pray about it, you start talking to people about it. I, I, I think it'll happen. When I go back to that NASA experience, you can be sure that if they pulled segments of that 400,000 people together in a room and they're celebrating or something, here's a question that they would ask. You'd almost be sure they'd ask it. So what do you do? What was your role? How did that play out? You'd want to know what the person beside you did in terms of making it to the moon, right? You'd want to know that. Why are we silent on the topic? I want to know what God's designing in you. I want to know what it is that's growing up inside of you. Do you know why? Because there's a word called synergy. The word synergy means that the whole is that the, 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 the whole is greater than its parts. 
I want to know that when I step beside somebody who has the gift of prophecy and I move in towards my gift of faith or you move in with your gift of mercy, I want to know how this is going to fit because I can't make the, gift of pro- the, 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 gift, the person with the gift of prophecy be like the gift of mercy. That's not going to work. That's not going to happen. That's going to be quarrelsome. That's what was happening in the church at Corinth. They were pulling out their spiritual gifts. They were comparing them to one another, and they were saying, my gift is more spiritual than your gift, and it created division. On the other hand, if I learn that you're a prophet and I'm a gift, one with the gift of mercy, there is incredible balance there. You remember that the guy with the gift or the guy or the gal with the gift of prophet, everything is black and white. This is the way it is. This is the way it is, Right? There's no gray areas in the mind of a prophet. You know why? Because God has spoken, and you can't deviate from it. And so he's going around, and he's, he's shaking his finger at them all. And then comes the person with mercy, and you're saying, yeah, but that poor fella, you don't understand. He's struggling, and they go, give him some space, and the prophet's wanting to go, no. And then if you can get these people who are willing to come together in the same pew in church, knowing who they are, the prophet shores up the, the message of God, and the person with mercy tells you there's a gift, a grace gift involved in this, and it strengthens it. It's synergy. It's what takes us together, allows us to be different while we all go on the same mission. We want to get the guy on the moon. We want the, the 34,000 people to the south of us to know that there's this Jesus who died for them. And we're going to do it in a variety of ways. They're called spiritual gifts. It's the way we focus on the, the mission. We take our little piece that we are and off we go. And it's incredibly important that we do not ignore what God has planted. Let me give you this final story. The guy with the PowerPoint is probably frustrated with me by now. Jesus took a simple little story, a little parable. And he put it this way. A guy is going on a mission. He's leaving his property. He can't leave it alone, so he invites three of his friends or three people who are working for him or whatever, and they said, I'm leaving, I need you to help me. And to the one guy, he, um, he gives three talents, three portions of his property. To another one, he gives two portions, and to another, he gives one. Here's the appropriate word in it all. He gave according to their ability. That's, that's really important to understand here. And then he left. It's the end of the story that's really eye-opening because the end of the story is this. He comes back and he gets the guy who he'd given three portions of his property to. He said, how do we do? The guy beams. He tells him exactly how it all unfolded. He talks about the investments. He talked about how it expanded to the point where, in fact, he, he doubled the investment. Does the same thing with the second guy. Second guy has the same reaction. He takes what he has according to his ability and he doubles it. And then he comes to the one with the single one. Now, as I try to imagine this story, I don't think it's just that Jesus is picking on the guy with the one versus the guy in the three. I'm suspicious that the story could have also been told where he came and he talked to the third guy or the first guy with the three and he said, how did you do? And he said, man, you gave me all of this. I was afraid I was going to lose it, so I just buried it. Could have happened there. But for the sake of Jesus' story, he comes to the guy with the one, and he says, how did we do? And he says, oh, man, I, 
I mean, you're a tough guy. I'm not, I'm not as talented as those other two guys are. And I, and I get looking at the possibilities here, and I'm thinking, no, this, this isn't going to work. And I just, I just want you to still like me when you come home. And so I, I took my little part of the property, my three talents, and I did nothing with it. But I have it. It's still inside. It's still part of the design. I just thought it might be safer if I didn't. When I think about spiritual gifts, though, I think the reason we want to make it safer isn't so much about the master, though in fact it affects him. I think the point of keeping it safe is more about us. I think we're afraid to fit, step into the door, through the door. I think we're afraid to move towards things. I, th- I, think, I think we want to I, I either make it as simple as possible to prevent any kind of embarrassment or... We're so busy looking at the people with the two and the three gifts that we're wishing we had them and ignoring the single one. Friends, in our church today, there's some of you who are sitting at a table and you're sewing, you're the seamstress for a space chute. That's all. You're putting it together. You got the sewing machine out. Somebody else has even designed it. You just got the sewing machine out. And you're putting together the suit. How dare a seamstress taking care of an astronaut suit, ever think for a moment it's not as, part, as important as the two bobs who are carefully monitoring the fuel. And yet I, I wonder if we do that. I'm just a seamstress. And so in light of that, heck, there's other things I can be doing in life. The story doesn't end well for the three, the, the, the single guy with the talent in fact, um, I, I, don't, I don't even know how and exactly what it fully means. I do know, though, that God gave him permission to live out the rest of his life defined by his fears. God does that. I know that God gave him permission to live out the rest of his life with a fatal belief system that he could not do what God had given, gifted him to do. I do know that. I do know that in the story, it looked very serious took what he had, gave it to the others, and sent the guy off to places we don't want to talk about these days. All I'm saying is we can't ignore 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There's a name on your forehead. There might be two names or three names. Usually spiritual gift testing, when you look at them, they give you the top three. Because as you look at those gifts... And you look at your life, you might even be surprised to see how God has in his own grace been guiding you through circumstances in life that just might look like one, two, or three of those top ones. But friends, our role isn't to get a man on the moon. And and I do this in a pleading kind of way. Our job is to take the 85% of the Moose Jaw population and figure out how we can resource all that we have together in order to glorify God and to serve those people, primarily to bring them into the kingdom. It's our role. And until we can activate that sense of responsibility, then we might sit more dormant than we wished we should. Yeah, this wonderful, wonderful privilege.
The story is told of a boy who did his household chores and left his mother this note. For cleaning my room, $5. For washing the dishes, $3. For raking the leaves, $10. Total, $18. You owe me, Mom. The mother read the note while the boy was at school, and she put the $18 on the table. With it, she left her own note for bearing your nine months in the womb and throwing up for three months, no charge. For cooking your breakfast every day, no charge. For washing and ironing your clothes, no charge. For staying up all night when you were sick, no charge. Total grace. That's what he offers to us. Bundled in a package that has your name on it. And he wants you, like a little 10-year-old boy, waiting and anticipating that magic moment on some Christmas morning when it gets handed to you and you begin to unwrap it to the glory of God and to the service of others. It's our role, church. It's what we are called to do. And I pray, oh, I pray folks, that we will, we, we, we will embrace it. Our, our salvation cost a lot but it was no charge to us in grace. God has given us eternity. In grace, he has given us forgiveness. In grace, he has done more for us than we could ever do for ourselves. One thing we can do, though, is to show our gratitude and to pray, let us, Holy Spirit, as I serve this world that you so loved, show me how you have gifted me. Reveal to me what supernatural enablement you have given me that I can use for the common good of my church and my community and to your glory. Amen. And here's the truth. He will answer that prayer absolutely every time. Amen.